So we're talking about what it means to, like we're focused in this area right now, and we're talking about what it means to live uh, like Jesus and love like Jesus and lead like Jesus. And those three words are really defining who we are as a church and where we're moving forward as a church uh, and what we want to do. And our church isn't like some kind of corporate machine. It's people. And when our people are living for Jesus, then our church is living for Jesus. And when our people are leading the way in our community, then our church is leading the way in our community. And and we've structured ourselves that way, that we are who we are, and we're not some uh, machine with a bunch of cogs in the machine. Like, we're not using people. We're empowering people in order to be all that we think Jesus is calling us to be. And so we talked last week a little bit about what it means to live for Jesus or live like Jesus with the habits that people have, uh, and specifically the habits that we see people having in our church when they grow. Today, what I'm actually going to talk about is personal holiness. Uh, Personal holiness is like the most boring way to say uh, what I'm trying to say, but that when you talk about that personal holiness, it's kind of a, a strange concept. Not a lot of people go around thinking, you know what, I need to work on my personal holiness, right? Like you don't find that those posts on Facebook or something. Today I'm working on my personal holiness. But if I had, like all preachers basically have one sermon, they just use different ways to say the same thing, right? And so today I'm just bluntly telling you this is my one sermon. Uh, and next week you'll notice it's the same sermon, just with different words. And every week, every, every week. So some of you don't attend that often. I ain't that worried because it's the same thing every week. <laughs> But what I, what I like feel called to tell people is that right now actually matters. Uh, there was for a long time, and I grew up in this kind of a tradition, that we, people believed about the world, uh, that God basically hated the world, and that he was saving the Christians from the world, and someday he's going to do this great thing called a rapture. And if you grew up in like the 90s, there were Christian books about this rapture thing that you read all the books, right? And you learned the name of the Antichrist and stuff like that, and uh, it was, we didn't realize it was a fiction book, not a biblical interpretation, but the rapture is a theology. Not everybody knows this. Well, uh, HBO did a show about this too, but, uh, but they didn't have anything to do with Christianity. They just thought it was an interesting concept. But uh, the rapture is this thing where eventually God gets so mad that he takes all the Christians, right? And they, all the Christians like actually, uh, and if you've never heard of this, don't giggle go like whoop, right? And, there's, and it's that noise. But uh, just, and, and the, the assumption is without your clothes, right? So Christians love to do rapture gags where they would le- lay a bunch of clothes out in a field and be like, oh, rapture, right? And really funny. But, uh, but this rapture, and some of you, this might be the only way you've heard of the end times happening, and so I don't mean to like shake your world in sentence number one, but this is not what I believe. So uh, the rapture happens and like all the Christians are sucked up to heaven, right? And so then just all the bad people are left. And thankfully, some of the Christians left VHS tapes for the bad people to learn the gospel. Uh, and, and they're able to watch them. This is how the book goes. And they're able to watch them and then, uh, uh, and then they become Christians and then there's underground Christian movement and, and God eventually destroys it. Like, uh, it's, it's all going to burn. It's all going to go away because this world is bad and God's going to save us from it. Um, if you go back 200 years, that's total heresy in the church. Like Nobody believed that. They thought that was a total joke. But then we had the rise of dispensationalism. And when I said that word, I lost 90% of the audience. But 
uh, we had this rise of a new theology that thought rapture was the way to go. And so there was a belief system that this world doesn't matter. That what you need to do is say a prayer or commit your life to Jesus or have your sins forgiven and, and uh, repent and be baptized and do the things that you need to do in order that uh, you can escape when Jesus comes to help us escape because this world is going to hell and we're trying to get out of it. Whereas what I believe the Bible teaches is that the world is going to hell and that's the reason that God is entering it. That Jesus is moving towards it. Uh, that God actually wants to redeem the worlds. And the thing I have in common with people that believe in a rapture is I believe in a new heaven and a new earth someday. And so you know, too, if like rapture actually happens, I'm not going to refuse, right? Like I'm not going to be like, oh, no, no, no. Like I'm staying indoors so God can't suck me up, right? Like I'll just be pinned against the ceiling. And there's no theological accounting for that either, which is kind of hilarious. Like there'll be just be Christians stuck, boom, 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 right? And, or is the rapture so violent that you get sucked through a roof, right? And there'll just be a major like roof repair business after the rapture. But uh, anyways, that's a whole other thing that doesn't mean anything to do with today's sermon. Um, if I can back up. What I believe is that God is constantly entering into the broken and the hurting and the messed up parts of our worlds and the broken and hurting and messed up parts of our lives and he's bringing those things back to an order that he originally intended. Uh, this is how I think the story starts. A theology that says the world is terrible starts in Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, if you don't know, Genesis is the first book in the Bible. And Genesis 3 is when sin happens. And so the first two chapters, everything is really, really good. Things are happening in a good and positive way. In fact, this is Genesis chapter 2 says, The Lord God took the man... And he put him, and this is a guy he named Adam in a minute, but he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And so like every day was Saturday. Uh, and the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. And we don't know how big the garden was. Uh, later on it appears to be rather large. But, uh, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Uh, and so he's given this... Um, task and this purpose and this place and this experience and later on uh, God brings through all the animals and Adam names all the animals which is just you know an incredible experience in itself but uh, how that worked or what that happened I don't know but he uh, comes through and animals but in those animals there's no friend uh, for uh, or no defender for man that that works well enough for God and so God creates woman and uh, there was, so, and names are Eve, and Adam and Eve are hanging out in the garden. And the Bible actually says, like, during the cool parts of the day, like, God would walk through the garden with them, and they would hear God walking around. And, and they, like, the first two humans had this wonderful, wonderful existence. If you grew up in, like, Sunday school, you know there were always bushes about yay high in the garden uh, because they weren't wearing clothes, they were just hanging out. So that means the temperature was that good. Uh, and there was just that much of um, an innocence that they were experiencing in their relationship with God. And then one day, uh, they ate from the tree of the knowledge of uh, good and evil. And when that happened, uh, we've, this is chapter 3, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God 
as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So they had sinned, and it immediately isolated them. It immediately put a, this is like the first breakdown in a relationship, and the breakdown is between uh, God and uh, Adam and Eve, God and the people that he used to have perfect relationship with. And the Lord God calls out to the man, where are you? It's this strange thing because God knows everything, but God gives the opportunity to ask questions so that the man can realize and the woman can realize where they are. And Adam answers, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Isn't that like the ultimate breakdown of a relationship? I heard you and I was afraid because I realized some things about me that I realized because I broke our relationship. And because I broke our relationship, I hid. This is ultimately, like a lot of people think of sin especially when you're talking about holiness, as God has this code of things that you do and you don't do. Like you have to do this and you can't do this. And what sin is, really, ultimately, is not following a set of rules. Sin is a breakdown of a relationship. Whenever we have rules, like if you're thinking about, um, if you're a young parent, uh, we, in our home, we don't have a ton of rules. We have a ton of conversations. Because uh, like you and if you had rules when you were a kid, you know exactly how to get around those rules, right? And that's like when you do your taxes, you're not doing your taxes out of your love for the government. You're looking at the rules and figuring out any loopholes in that rule, right? Like we had to be home by three o'clock and we were late. We'd change our watch. And then we get home and be like, oh, it said three o'clock. I'm sorry, your clock says 325? That's so weird. I think I need a new watch, right? And it was always in the summertime that my watches didn't work. Uh, <laughs> but it, it was just that, you know, that's just, you get around the rules. Oh, you said be in by 10. I didn't know you meant 10 p.m. Um, <laughs> but when you have a system of relationship that is based on rules, you're always figuring out how to push those rules or work your way around those rules. What God set, tries to set up is a system of relationship built on love, built on honor, built on respect, built on a desire to be in love with one another, which is why God moves towards the people who have sinned against God. Now, God's love for Adam and Eve doesn't change in this situation. And, and if you, I'm not going to show you the whole thing, but it goes downhill really quickly. Like, God says, what did you do? You ate from the, like, the one thing you're not supposed to do, you did it. And the man immediately goes, it's this woman. I cannot believe it, right? And so God looks at the woman, and, and the woman goes, it was this serpent that was talking to me, right? Which, so you know, is another strange thing. Because Eve never goes, it's weird that the snake is talking, which means there's a really good chance that the animals talked in the Garden of Eden. <sighs> Just saying. So... Like, she never thinks, you know what? A talking snake. Maybe I shouldn't do what it does. You know, like, <laughs> people argue over whether creation's literal or not, and none of them are willing to, like, stake their claim in talking animals, right? Like, just, I'm going down with the ship on talking animals at the beginning. And, and in heaven, if there are animals, which I don't think so, and I have some theology about that, but, 
uh, there are horses, because Jesus is riding one in the vision of the new heaven, but it would appear that horse talks. <laughs> Don't know what it sounds like, but I know you're thinking right now of what that horse, doesn't it? Like it has kind of that <laughs> voice, right? <laughs> Anyways. So, Eve immediately blames the snake, and the snake, uh, who was the embodiment of Satan, or Satan himself, or whatever that means, uh, is like, yes, I will 100% take the blame. I'm good with that because I'm winning here. And so there's consequences. And so God gives consequences in Genesis 3. So the Lord God banished him, and uh, by proxy her as well, from the Garden of Eden, to work the ground from which he had been taken. And after he drove the man out, he put on the east side of the Garden of Eden, cherubim, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. And so what do you believe about this? There are people that believe this is just a story to explain things, or there are other people who believe this is literally true, every single one. That, those kind of things I'm not interested in, because those, I think it's just more enjoyment than put your stake in the ground and live there only. Uh, I think you can believe anything you want, almost, about this, uh, and still be a follower of Jesus. Uh, almost. Uh, but but what God does is say, here we're in relationship, you broke that relationship, now the consequence of that relationship is you're outside the garden. And Adam and Eve will live the rest of their lives and all of their children, which is all of us, outside of the garden. And so there's a hopelessness too that experience. If you've ever been in relationship with someone that's meaningful, and suddenly, and you break that relationship, and they tell you, get out of my space. There's a feeling when you first enter into the wilderness of outside of that space, of not knowing where you are, of not knowing what's going on, and a hopelessness to it. And so in Genesis chapter 4, the most meaningful verse in the Bible that nobody ever looks at, Genesis chapter 4, verse 6, Cain and Abel are the children of Adam and Eve, and they had other children, but these are the two main ones at the beginning. And it says, the Lord said to Canaan, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? And the why, the question isn't what's important. Where is Cain? In the wilderness outside of the garden. And the Lord speaks to him. Which means God is not restricted to living in a garden. Their God apparently moves out and outside of the space that he's designed for him to live in and to be in relationship with his people in. A lot of uh, modern scholars see the Genesis narrative, the creation narrative, as being God building himself a temple to live in. And ultimately the cosmos is God's temple to live in. Everything you look at in this grand temple of creation that we live in brings glory to God. Just like if you walk into a temple of, some, of Ra, the sun god in ancient Egypt, everything in there was designed for you to glorify Ra, the sun god, but God, the Yahweh God of the Old Testament, has actually created everything to glorify himself. So when you look at the mountains, when you look at the oceans, when you look at the stars, you think, man, our God has designed something awesome. This is his temple and we'll glorify him here. For Adam and Eve's, sorry, for Adam and Eve's story, it was originally told as the cultures around it had gods that existed in places. Ra, the sun god, was in charge of the sun. There was the god of the Nile. There was the god of Egypt. There was the god of the animals. There was the god of war. There was the god of the moon. 
And these gods, would, there would be Babylonian gods that lived in Babylon, Egyptian gods that lived in Egypt, Assyrian gods that lived to the north. And all of those gods lived there. And so there's this moment that God, in Genesis 4-6, speaks where he's not supposed to be. Which is this huge theological step that the people who served God messed things up and had to be removed from God. And where do we find God? Outside of his holy designed space, living with these people, speaking to these people, having conversations with people who are on the outside. And so in Genesis 4, chapter 6, God actually begins his pursuit of his people as he's constantly moving towards people who are on the outside. You've never thought before Genesis 4, 6 is an important verse. <laughs> Most people just walk right past this because Cain and Abel are about to you know, kill each other and stuff, so it's kind of unfortunate. <laughs> but there's this moment in that where we find God there. <laughs> there was a fly if you're in the back. <laughs> we find God there, and we find that God is in a place where there's sin, where there's brokenness, where there's a need for redemption, where people are far from God, God finds himself in that space, moving towards that space. And so the Bible and the story starts in Genesis 4-6 all the way through to Jesus, Jesus being the culmination of this, is God moving towards his people. Sorry, towards the people he loves which is all people. God moves towards them in a particular people called Israel, but the whole point of Israel, if you read Genesis 12 correctly, is that God's going to bless Israel so that they can be a blessing to the whole world. Like God's going to use these people in order that the whole world will know who he is. Because God is not a God of a particular area. God is a God of all creation. And so God's moving towards them. And then if you read the Old Testament, you get to books like Leviticus, where it's just rules upon rules upon rules. People love to quote Leviticus and call us, you know, hypocrites and stuff like that, because Leviticus says, like, uh, you can't wear clothes made of two different kinds of material, and uh, certain animals can't hang out together, and you can't eat shellfish, and those kinds of strange things. And so there's people that think, like, God actually hates shellfish, or God hates polyester blends, you know, and... Uh, and and God doesn't hate that. What he's actually doing is creating a structure for the people to be able to live in the presence of God, uh, which is a way too advanced way of thinking of the Scripture than most people who use it to say, oh, therefore you're wrong. Uh, God is doing something massive. So to take, uh, like the book of Leviticus, most of us read it and it seems pretty boring, but if you're able to see that this is God ordering a people so that he can live among them and they can live among, uh, like, experience what it is to live with him, then it's a beautiful thing. And it moves forward as Israel, the God's people who are supposed to be the witness to the whole world, take two steps back forward and three steps back, right? And there's just a constant struggle to be in relationship with God because sin is so effective to people and so uh, like corrupted to our personal motivations that eventually uh, Paul, who's an early Christian writer, says, you know who I don't trust? Myself. Because myself is the one who wars against what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to follow Jesus, and myself is wrecking that and ruining that and making it more difficult than I want it to be. But God moves forward and moves forward until eventually we have Jesus. Jesus coming to earth, God in human form, is the ultimate 
expression of God moving towards us. The reason that Jesus is a beautiful moment is because every other religious system in the history of the world is improve yourself and eventually you can be like God. And Jesus is, even though you aren't improved, I'm coming close to you, which is what it is to be improved. Proximity to God. Not a behavioral code. But how you live matters. Like we don't want to take out the entire book of James and then then not... I didn't write it, but uh, I wish I did. Uh, The entire book of James is uh, just believing isn't enough. It's got to affect your life. You've got to live in a particular way. Jesus uh, preached a sermon. It's a famous sermon that they recorded in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And in that, in Matthew 5, 48, Jesus says this, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So Jesus, they're asking Jesus, like, what's the standard? How should we live? And Jesus says, be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Kind of sets the bar high. Like, if you're a new parent, I wouldn't go with this. <laughs> what, are, what are the rules here? You have to be perfect, just as your Father is per- Oh, dang it. Right? There's <laughs> an interesting relational sense. Like, they could have said, be perfect. Jesus could have said, be perfect, therefore, as God is perfect. But he puts in this relational as your father is perfect. And if you are reading the Bible, like a trick to understanding the Bible, because I know a lot of us read it and we're not really sure what things mean. Whenever you see the word therefore, uh, there's something before that that this statement is a culmination of. And what's before this is a whole section about Jesus says, you should love everyone, even your enemies. Like you should love the unlovable. You should love the people you hate or that you should hate. You should love the people who hate you. You should love your enemies. People who are doing evil in the world, you should love them. And that is what it is to be perfect, just like your Heavenly Father is perfect. Because what did God do? He moved towards the people who had sinned against Him, who hated Him, who were enemies of God. He moves towards them. And Jesus himself is that very movement. And so what it is to be a perfect Christian is not necessarily like, uh, you know, there's no gold stars or church attendance or Bible study or something, or, or there's not even like gold stars for witnessing. What it is to be perfect, and so you know, like if you read about this, a lot of times they say that word perfect means whole and complete and and you look at like there are modern translations that try to take the word perfect out because it's really intimidating. But I like to, anytime I don't like what the Bible says, I like to leave it alone because I figure it's a problem with me, not the Bible. Does that make sense? Like if I'm like, nah, I don't really like that. I would go with God rather than my opinion. Just general advice. There's two pieces of advice today uh, on what the therefore is therefore. And if you disagree with the Bible, I'd go with the Bible. Um, <laughs> but being perfect according to Jesus is having that perfect love for all people, even for the people who are against you, even for your enemies. And this doesn't mean like allowing yourself to be killed or being defenseless or something like that. Uh, you can be, you can have love for a person and still have boundaries and limits and structure around your relationships, both on a micro personal level and on a macro, like an international uh, relations kind of level. You can have structure. But that doesn't change our love for that other person. 
we love all people. And you think like, oh, that's good. Like, that's what we want to do. That seems like an easy thing to do. Don't we all want to do that? But for Christians, loving all people is the most difficult way to live as a follower of Jesus. Because it means we love people who disagree with us. We love people who condemn us. We love people who say they agree with us, but live in a way that is actually disagreement. And we love, and we love, and we love, and we love. And that love isn't declarations. It isn't serving. It isn't just having a warm, affectionate feeling. Jesus demonstrates this love, and God demonstrates this love in moving towards the outsider, moving towards the enemy, being in proximity with them. Simple things of saying, I'm not giving up on you. Even if you've given up on yourself, I'm not. Even if everyone else has, I'm not. This is, according to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, and I know I'm pulling out one verse, this is what it is to be holy, to be perfect, to be separated not just from the world, but also separated from like sham Christianity. A lot of people wonder, like, how do I be a better Christian? How do I live the way Jesus wanted me to live? And the key to it is not something that people want to hear. The key is, love everyone. It's way too simple. But it's way too complicated. Here's what I want to share. This is how I'm going to end. This is a prayer in Ephesians chapter 3, and I'm going to read this thing to you. This is a guy named the Apostle. He's named Paul. He wasn't named the Apostle Paul. His title is the Apostle. His name is Paul. Uh, and he wrote letters to the very, very early church. Uh, like he started churches and then he'd write letters to them saying, hey, you're kind of like, didn't listen to what I said. Maybe you should do this thing over here. Or these people kind of surprised me. I didn't think they were going to be that obstinate. So we need to do this. So he writes this letter to a church in a town called Ephesus. So it's called Ephesians because they are the Ephesians. And he writes this letter. And the first, this is the end of the first half. And then the second half of the letter, like chapter 1, 2, 3, and then chapter 4, 5, 6, the second half is just all about how to live in community as a church. And so when he's talking about love, that love for one another in the church is the demonstration. And this is uh, what the verse says. For this reason I kneel before the Father. So he's saying a prayer. Uh, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And in the original language, uh, that's kind of an interesting wordplay because father and family sound almost the same. But this is what he prays. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. I'm going to stay here just for a second. But the, what Paul is praying is that the Father will strengthen this church um, out of the glorious riches that the Father has. So out of the resources of the Father will strengthen you with power through His Spirit, in your inner being. So the church will be full of people who are powerful in their, through the indwelling Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit that lives within you if you're a follower of Jesus, through your inner being. I'm sorry, through His Spirit, in your inner being. So at the core of who you are, at the core of everything about you, exists the Holy Spirit who brings power into your life so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Because Christ 
is not able to dwell in your heart in a powerless situation. Christ is not interested in your life being weak and pitiful. Christ is interested in your life being powerful in a spiritual kind of way. So you, as a follower of Jesus, if you've put your full faith in Jesus, have the Holy Spirit living in you, and that is an experience of power. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, so the church understands what it is to love each other, may have power, together with all the Lord's people, to grasp how, long, how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled to the full, sorry, so you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now, if this is your first time reading Paul, one of the things he loved is to use more words than he had to, right? Like it's like he's writing an essay and it required 10,000 words, and he's like, I gotta, oh, so the full measure of the fullness of all of, like, we get it, okay? Don't tell him I said that because he wrote parts of the Bible, but what he's trying to get through, we would speak much more economically in our culture today. But what he's saying is the power of the Spirit of God in you actually enables you to understand the full measure of love. The full measure of the love of Christ, which is the full measure of the love of all humanity. So the thing that Paul wants for this church is that they may know what love really is like the expansive, unbounded love of Christ that doesn't have limits on it, that it's too wide and long and high. And this love, it even just surpasses knowledge. Like you don't just know about the love of God. You live and experience the love of God as you live in it so that you can live a life that's full of God. So what Paul's saying is, I'm praying that you might have such a holy life that you are strengthened by the Spirit so that you understand love. That depth, that difficulty. I had a guy when I was in my uh, late 20s. He was in his 70s, and I was having lunch with him, and we were talking, and I'm a young pastor, you know, and so when I'd hang out with older folks who've been like Christians longer than I've been alive, I figured I had a lot to learn. And this man who was in his 70s said to me, uh, you know, I think I'm just starting to understand what it really means to love people. You know how depressing that is? Because <laughs> in your late 20s, you have everything figured out, right? <laughs> but by the time you get to 70, you realize, I don't know a thing. <laughs> and you think, maybe I'm just starting to understand what this is. Understanding what love is, is, an, is a lifelong journey that grows. This is why people that have been married for 40, 50, 60 years say, I love them more than the day that we were married. Like, that's a nutty thing to say, because the day you got married, you put, like, a lot of resources into that, right? And you looked really good in your outfits and your professional hairdo and makeup, and they're like, we are in love, right? And you go on a honeymoon because you're so in love. And then you think, 60 years later, I'm more in love than I was then. It's kind of rude. <laughs> in a beautiful, romantic kind of way. <laughs> but there is this growth in love that happens when you start to understand there's no boundaries on it. There's no limits to it. 
In fact, it's not just something I know, it's something I experience over and over. And here's why. And this is what I think the key is. Why does Paul want this for this Ephesians church? Why does he want it for you? Why should you want it for you? This is how this section ends. With this blessing. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine. That's Jesus. According to the power, sorry, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. According to his power that is at work within us. What's his power that's at work within us? The Spirit of God letting us know and experience the unbounded love of Christ and reflect that unbounded love of Christ to the world around us. When that happens in a person's life or in the life of a church or a community of followers of Jesus, him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine glorifies to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. Things that are beyond what you're able to think, to ask, or imagine, Christ is able to do through the power, and this sounds like a cheesy love song, but it's true, and I apologize for the cheesiness, through the power of the love living in you. The power of the love of Christ living in you creates the environment for God to do things that you couldn't even ask or imagine. And we have big dreams as a church body, right? If you don't know, we're like trying to merge with another church. You know how frequently that works? Yeah, not very frequently. <laughs> we have dreams of growing this church to the, like, and to the point where people are coming to know Jesus so much that we are planting new churches in the towns around us. We have dreams of changing the experience of what it is to live in Albany, whether you're a Christian or not. Uh, this is why we partnered with the local middle schools. And we're doing like these uh, hygiene closet things in the local middle schools because we think the experience of being a middle schooler in this town should be different because this church knows the full and unbounded extent of what it is to be loved by Christ. We imagined all those, right? And what God is saying is when you live like Jesus in the holiness which is perfect love for all people, this is what holiness is, perfect love for all people, then the things that God will do among you will be beyond what you are thinking or planning or even hoping for. He's actually saying that your dreams are too tiny <laughs> because when you love each other and, the, and God and the world, then the unity that that brings about togetherness with all people, all generations, then all of a sudden God will do things that we didn't even think were possible to think about. And that's not just a church thing, that's a your own personal life thing. Because there's things in your life that you dream of coming true. You dream of someday having this impact for Jesus. And the key to it, I don't think, is more training or more knowledge or more exposure or more church attendance or more whatever. It's growing in love, growing in the, your experience of the love of Christ and growing in the experience of uh, Christ's love pouring out through you in a powerful way to all the people around you. 
I think at the end of everything, I was taught when I was young with the people who told me everything's going to burn. They told me when I stand before Jesus at the end of everything, Jesus is going to ask, how many people did you tell about me? And the reality is, not enough. I'm no Billy Graham, and neither are you, (laughs) right? There's not that many people in the history of humanity that I've told about Jesus. And I do this in a microphone every single week, right? Like all of us, we don't have, like, that's not this huge number. And so I had this like guilt motivation my whole life. And I'm like, ah, I need to do more of this, right? Like, and, and so what actually happens is I end up not liking God because I think his standard is weird and uncomfortable. But hell sounds like it sucks. So I guess we got to go with the uncomfortable guy. There's an author named Brendan Manning uh, that he says it differently. He says, when you stand before Jesus, Jesus is going to ask you, uh, did you believe that I loved you? Did you hear that? Jesus is going to ask you, did you believe that I loved you? And at first you think, that's way better. But then you think about it and you're like, ah, crap, that's way harder. What about hell? No, but, but that acceptance that Christ loves you, I think, is the most difficult hurdle for a person who doesn't follow Jesus to eventually follow Jesus. And I, and I mean people who identify as non-Christians and people who identify as Christians. Because there's this step that you take as a Christian where you say, I want to give my life to Jesus. And then there's, I think, kind of a second step. And for some people, that second step happens really soon. Some people, it's decades later, where you say, I think I actually believe that Jesus like loves me even though he knows me. And like as time has gone on, years and decades, I feel more in love with Jesus than I did on that day when I realized that my sins can be taken away and my eternal destiny has changed and the, just the fervor and excitement and zeal of new faith in Christ. Like a marriage. And now decades later, I think I love and I think I experience love in a way that I never imagined would be even possible. If that's news to you, and that might be confusing to you, like forget everything else and just know this, that Jesus like, is God's like, actual expression of love to you. Like God sent his son to earth to live among us because we are far from him. And no matter how far you are from him, Jesus is constantly moving towards you. If you feel far from God, the feeling is a lie because Jesus is very close to you. The Bible actually says that, that Jesus is in close proximity to all people because he loves all people. And that experience of love is sometimes very difficult to accept. Just like any, anyone that loves us for a reason that we, just, we don't think we've earned it, or we don't think we're good enough, or we don't deserve it. Jesus has actually decided to love you even though he knows you. Even though he knows the best about you, but also the worst about you, he still chose to come to earth and live among you. I mean, the humans of Jesus' day crucified him for crying out loud. And on the cross, he's praying for their forgiveness because he loves. And so we live into uh, that experience of Christ's love to us 
and the experience of expressing that love to the world. Let's pray together, all right? We, we can stand to pray, and then we're going to worship, and I think we have good reason to. Jesus, our God, uh, we come before you and pray in the experience of your love because you loved us. I mean, how bold is it that we pray together in a room, Lord, and expect the God of the universe to hear our prayer? And yet, you have said you care, and our prayers are like incense in your throne room. That you actually enjoy our conversation with you because you love us in a relationally close way. So God, I want to pray for all of us here that you would allow us to experience the love of Christ. Help us believe that you love us. When we're faced with choices that we know are sin, God, that we know will break down that relationship, I pray that we wouldn't feel guilt, but that we would feel loved. And that our motivation to live in a certain way is out of your love for us. And that our love for you is powered by your love for us. That we are just kind of small reflections of the beauty of who you are. As you move towards us, cause us as individuals and as a church to move towards others. To move towards each other, to not blame like what sin did in the garden, to not isolate, but to constantly be in more loving relationships with the people around us and the people that you love and the people who are on the outside of wherever we are. May your grace fill us to the point that we are a powerful people living by your Spirit for the glory of Jesus who gave his life out of love for us. Amen.